Hello and welcome to the ENJ podcast. I am Simon Carley. I'm one of the associate editors and today we're going to be taking you through February 2019, uh, shortest month of the year, but still lots of content, lots of things to talk about and lots of great stuff in the EMJ. What can we get you to think about this month? Well, we've got quite a few things in. I'm going to kick off with a paper from uh, Denmark looking at triage and mortality. And, well, i got to tell you what they did, and then we'll have a little bit of controversy about it. So it, this is one of a range of studies, really, we've published in the EMJ. And there's lots of other studies around the world looking at what triage predicts. And in this study, they've compared something called the DEPT, which I think is the Danish Emergency Priority Tool, against uh, medical students and phlebotomists just going, well, I think they're going to die or not, or probably going to die or not. You know what I mean? So basically, a, a very brief eyeball test they call it the eyeball test, um, versus the depth. And then looking at, at what the probability of death is, depending on how that works. Now, what they've shown with this is that actually the eyeball seems to work pretty well. Now, that's okay. I'm quite happy with that as, as, as an observation. I think it's interesting, though, that the depth is not really designed to tell you whether you're going to live or die. And this is something which is common to many triage scales. And certainly here in Manchester, we developed the MTS, one of the biggest um, triage scales internationally. And that was never designed to tell whether you required ICU admission or whether you're going to die or whether you were going to go home or whether you're going to go to HD or a ward. It was designed to say, how quickly does this person need to be seen in the ED? So it's a, it's a priority score, not an outcome score. So the fact that one doesn't perform quite the same as another probably doesn't surprise me. It probably tells me that there's some factors in just global assessment of patients, that holistic gestalt type assessment, which are valuable. But don't have a look at this and ditch the depth or whichever triage school you're looking at. Um, but go and have a look at it at the paper and look at the methodology and ask yourselves the question, well, what is your triage score trying to measure and how do you know whether it's doing it well? So want to go away and think about it. Then I'm going to talk about um, the well, nice title actually it includes the words juicing and squeezing in the title, so pretty good really I think as, a, as an idea. And this is um, from Brian Rowe and colleagues, and it's a systematic review examining the impact of redirecting low acuity patients seeking ED care, and and is it worth it? And all of us, particularly in the UK, and I suspect all of us internationally, will have suffered and been angered by arguments that most patients could be treated in alternative locations. To which my usual response is, well, go on then. Well, there isn't anywhere else, so they're here, so kind of we're going to do it. But anyway, there's lots of effort been put into trying to get patients to go somewhere else. And then, you know, there's, there's some argument that certainly some of them could be. Um, but there's disagreements about the proportion and the range and the scope of, of what can be transferred elsewhere. So it often feels that the redirection bandwagon is led by politically and arguably discriminatory policy because the redirection strategies don't work across all populations and particularly not necessarily for our patients who are at most risk. So people like the homeless or don't have English as a first language they really struggle to access alternative routes and the emergency department has always been a, a safety net for them. So there's been a lot of money thrown at it. There's a lot of been politics at it. Certainly in the UK, this is my opinion, not the author's opinion. Um, so what these guys have done uh, is very good, is they've actually gone and looked at the evidence. What a crazy idea that would be. Um, so it is a systematic review, looking at redaction policies, and to no great surprise, in my humble opinion, uh, there's pretty little evidence that they're effective. Honestly. They, I mean, as an evidence-based policy, it's really just not there. And that matters, as we are in a restricted financial world at the moment and we should be throwing our money at things which do work evidence-based policy that'd be great uh, simply telling people not to come to the ed is probably not going to work and um, we can redirect them when they get there but just telling them not to come i'm not convinced and i think the the evidence here suggests not 
We then got an interesting paper on alcohol, jail and sobriety. Interesting one, this particularly reading from a UK perspective. But essentially, this is a paper put together by American colleagues looking at um, a, what's called a serial inebriate program. So this was taking patients who'd been multiply arrested, I think, for alcohol-related um, offences and either putting them into jail time, which I don't think is something we do in the UK particularly, or giving them the option to go into a, a, what is essentially a detox program. And what they found was probably a little bit disappointing. And there's a lot of studies around alcohol which are a bit disappointing that way, um, in that although the patients who went into the detox type program had less contact with EMS. They actually ended up in jail more often. Whether that's good for them, whether that's good for society is really open for question. But it's a good example of why you actually need to study interventions about what seems like a good idea isn't always a great idea. And it has hidden consequences. You need to know about them before you do adopt it more widely. So good on them for doing the study and for publishing it. Then we've got... Um, a, a paper which I think there's two papers actually that you genuinely definitely need to read this month this is one it's about CBRN decontamination it's a primer um, you will of course be aware of the issues we've had in the UK around Salisbury and Novichok and I went to a brilliant presentation actually the ICS recently um, of the doctors who were involved in that really interesting and really brought home to me how we do need to be prepared in our civilian work for the possibility of, of meeting things like nerve agents and knowing what to do with them. So this is a, a nice uh, sobering reminder, arguably, that we need to be capable of dealing with chemical, biological, radiation and nuclear instance, the CBRN um, quartet, as you like. So Mushroom Review paper talks about how we do the decontamination and really that front door thing and that, that particularly chaotic time when patients are first arriving and um, well worth a read and well worth sharing actually it's open access and um, well worth sharing with colleagues and discussing it before the events happen and that was a message that came out of our colleagues from Salisbury as well because they weren't exactly expecting it in Salisbury but it could happen anyway that's that's the lesson it can then we're going to talk about a paper um, on tranexamic acid now I am well known to be a huge advocate of tranexamic acid I think crash 2 is a great trial really brilliant work and has been followed up there with several subsequent trials which show the benefits of tranexamic acid but there have been concerns about its implementation both whether we're doing it giving it to enough patients or whether we're giving it to too many patients or whether the scope of who we give it to has expanded beyond the patients who were in the original crash too spoiler alert yes it has in my humble opinion because there seems to be certainly in a lot of areas, the, the trigger for giving tranexamic acid is um, almost a mechanism of injury. And that's an interesting one because that wasn't in the original paper. You should go back and have a read of it. So what these guys have done, Tim Coates, who have a huge amount of respect for, and colleagues, have gone back and looked at the trends in how tranexamic acid is being used in the UK for patients who appear in the TARN database. Now, patients who appear in TARN are not necessarily the same patients who are bleeding. Interesting and important point. Although many of them are. And what they've shown in the, the data is it doesn't look as if we're giving tranexamic acid to enough patients. The problem is they don't really know exactly which were the bleeding ones. But they've used some proxy measures of, of things like uh, pulse, blood pressure, as a proxy markers of patients who probably got the signs of bleeding, who you might should be giving it to. It, and it still falls way below what we should be doing. It's data going up to 2016. So it probably suggests that we should be giving it to more patients. It's not quite as perfect as we would like from evidence-based medicine practice, but it's a timely reminder that we do need to make sure that those patients who are at risk of bleeding do get the TXA. So go and have a look at that, see what you think of it, and go and reflect on your own practice. As always, when you look at your own practice, it's never quite as good as you think it is. Then there's a, a quick, tiny little short report from our colleagues over in the US looking at fomites. Fomites, remember those things that bugs sit on? transmit patient 
problems from one place to another. They basically found MRSA all over the ambulance, particularly on things like oxygen cylinders, which you wouldn't necessarily think are patient contact things. They're not really. It means that we're putting it, spreading it around. And again, a lot of the data about infection transmission suggests that it's the people, it's the clinicians, not wearing, you know, not washing hands, not changing gloves, that does spread things around. So they've looked at um, the possibility of spreading MRSA through the ambulances. It's probably an issue across the world. Um, how we resolve that oh, is going to be a tricky one. Um, again, in the ambulances and in the ED, but it's important. So go and have a think. Then we've got a, oh, I like this paper, actually. It's a variation in subarachnoid bleed workups. Now, what I like about this paper, um, and it's done by Prof. Kevin Chu, is that we kind of know that when you're doing a difficult diagnostic problem like subarachnoid hemorrhage, acute sudden onset headache, then there is variation in the decisions and what people do. We know the what, but what they've done here is a qualitative approach and they've looked into the why, which is far more interesting in my opinion. Because variability is one thing. Why we have variability, much more interesting, much more complex. And there's got, got lots of information here. You need to go and have a look at it. One thing, one thing that grasped me was this idea of shared decision-making, which is something I think I do with patients, particularly when we're asking them whether they want to have a lumbar puncture after a negative CT. And what they've identified is that it's probably not as shared as we think, in that I probably, and others almost certainly, guide the conversation around a shared decision uh, conversation into what I thought they should have. So is that really shared? I'm not sure that it is, but it's a, probably a reality. You, you probably do the same. Honestly, you do. Have a think about it. And if not, get somebody to watch you and get them to tell you whether you're really, really completely neutral in a shared decision-making conversation. We, we just aren't. But anyway, there's lots of interesting stuff on there, not just about subarachnoid hemorrhage, but in about decision-making in general, which is um, well, personally one of my interests and I think one of the most important things that we do in emergency medicine. Then there's um, a quick paper from China looking at ED length of stay and whether it affects outcome in sepsis patients. It apparently does. So if you hang around in the ED for too long, your outcomes from sepsis are worse. There's quite a lot of confounding factors in there which um, could affect that. But to me, the lesson that comes out of it is, and, and certainly my reality is, patients are always going to be hanging around in the ED waiting for ICU beds. We we need to make sure that the quality of care that they get in the recess room is as good as they can get up on ICU or as close to it as we can possibly make it. And that, to me, is, speaks to that idea of, you know, the upstairs care downstairs. I think um, Scott Weingart originally talked about that. But we should be able to project ICU management into the recess room. That's a no-brainer and one to go away and think about. So finally, I'm going to talk about a paper from a friend of ours uh, called Matthew Reed. Um, he's from Edinburgh. He is a, I think, a world expert in the management investigation and diagnostics around syncope. An interest he's had for many, many years. And I'm, I'm glad to say that the EMJ has published a lot of his work. Um, I've seen him present, great presenter. And he has investigated this really difficult area. Syncope patients are a nightmare. No, they're not a nightmare. They're lovely people. But they're a nightmare for us because a simple syncope can be anything from a faint up to Brigada syndrome or, you know, some horrible pathology which could potentially kill the patient. And so in this particular study, he's taken a nice systematic approach. He's looked at the evidence. He's looked at the evidence about which um, investigation should be routine, which you should limit to specific groups, and in particular, how we follow up and the decision making about who comes in and who goes home. We can't just simply admit everybody, and it's too ridiculous to just send everybody home. So some form of risk stratification, which could be justified and defended. 
and is good for you, good for the patients, good for the health economies, I think is really good. So my two papers definitely that to, to read this month were one, this one, um, Matthew Reed's one on syncope because he's, he's a genius and it's brilliant. And the other one is the CBRN one because I think that's just something that you wish you had read if it ever happens to you. So that was February and we will be back in March. I hope you have a wonderful month and we'll see you soon. Bye.